giving people that space to experiment, to play, to learn, to try new things and to fail if they needed to. That's Ross Chaldicott, the co-founder and CEO of Kind, and this is Wild Hearts. Welcome back to season three of Wild Hearts. I'm your host, Mason Yates, and this is the podcast dedicated to revealing the secrets from the founders looking to change the world. Today, I'll be interviewing Ross Chaldicott, the co-founder and CEO of Kind, a business that exists to reinvent the way software companies get started. Now, this episode is honestly packed with insights, everything from what made Shopify and Atlassian such exceptional businesses, what was incredible about those founders, how great designers think, the tactics and strategies on how Kind is building its company, everything from designing an incredible self-service experience to its SEO strategy and so much more. If you found this episode valuable, we'd be super grateful if you interacted with it so other Wild Hearts can find us. Here is my chat with Ross. I'm going to start with a pretty open question, and we can take this in a number of different directions. You spent five years at Atlassian, two and a half years at Campaign Monitor, three or so years at Shopify. Aside from the founders, what were some of the business principles and lessons that made those companies so exceptional? And I'm happy to go to sort of help organize our thinking one by one, starting with Atlassian, what made that company so magical from a business point of view? Atlassian and Shopify were very similar businesses. So there's actually a lot of parallels and the two influenced each other and still to today influence each other. Toby and Mike and Scott are all very close. So that you see a lot of crossovers and yet surprisingly also very different companies. But you see a lot of similar thinking goes into it. So I'd say one of the big things, and, and we think about it a lot at a kind as well, is kind of building a hundred year business. I think that's a big part of how you build something uh, for the long term and how you build a great culture because it forces you to think quite differently. You stop thinking about how do we solve just today's problem. You think about how do we solve today's problem and how do we solve that for the long term. And so a lot of that means you focus on building culture first rather than being less aggressive with culture because what you're actually doing with a company is aligning a group of people on a mission and a purpose and a set of values and a vision. It's a little bit less about building the actual product. Yes, the product really matters and it's the most important thing that a team generates. But if you don't have a great team, if you don't have a great vision and a mission that a team is driving behind, then you're really going to struggle. And so I think just aligning the teams on that concept of we're building something to last, we're building something that's generational, that's going to have impact further than any one of us. I think that makes a big difference in the mindset of the people because building hard for the long term while they're trying to do everything that they possibly can to grow the business in the short term. One of the other pieces would be super, super intense customer centricity to the point where neither of those companies particularly talk internally about how much things cost to build or how much revenue they should be generating. Instead, they focus very intensely on what problem are we solving for the customer and what value is that going to bring, not in terms of financials, but in terms of customer benefit. Um, and that's quite different to most companies. A lot of companies, you know, when you talk about planning teams, they'll talk literally about how much does it cost to fund this team. And so as soon as you're, you're thinking about this feature is going to cost us a million dollars, is that feature worth investing a million dollars in? That changes the mindset of the team. And they start to think the wrong way about what is the most valuable thing to do. 
And you have to almost reverse that. You have to think customers first, revenue and cost second, because what you want to do is build the best damn product that you can for customers and build the best company to support those customers. And I think that's something that is a little bit special that a lot of companies don't really realize that the companies like Atlassian and Shopify really got very early on. And so, yeah, as a manager of a massive team at uh, Atlassian, I had a team of 30 people and at Shopify 75, I did not once discuss how much that team was physically costing, not with a single person. And that's very, very important in changing the mindset. And I think those two things, yeah, being very mission-driven and being being very customer-centric make a big difference to how you grow the whole company because those two things enable people to be thinking about how to build great cultures, about how to build, build great customer-centric machines, how to, how to institute a research mindset, institute a design mindset into the company. I want to jump into both those areas because they're obviously massively impactful to both of those companies' DNA. On the 100-year mindset, can you share an example of how that trade-off reveals itself in the day-to-day as you're making decisions? Is there an example that comes to mind where because we have this 100-year cap on, we're going to go down this road? Nothing either of those two companies ever built was built for a particular customer. It's literally the way you build product is to look at all of your customers and try to understand what it is that the needs of the majority of them are. Try to find the things that everybody needs in order to be able to enable them to do their jobs rather than going and saying, oh, we have this big enterprise customer that wants to come on. What do we go and build specifically for them? Which kind of changes the product quite fundamentally because instead of it being baked in with a bunch of bespoke code specifically to solve one customer's need or features that solve one customer's need, you end up saying, what is the majority? And we talk about it kind as what do most people need most of the time? Um, You're looking at the feature set that most people need that will enable most people. And then both of those companies, and we'll be doing the same, have marketplaces where you get those additional extension and that could be built by the company or it could be built by an expert partner externally. It's taking that time to not be driven by any one customer, but being driven by all of your customers, understanding what all of them need, understanding how you can empower as many of them as possible and make as many of them successful. So it's hard to identify individual ones. So when when you're looking at features, We would have researchers thinking six months out, going out and speaking to the market, understanding what people need, understanding what drives them, what motivates them, what makes them successful, what are the levers that will help them to succeed, and then feeding them back into the team, who would then do a very kind of customer-centric design process in order to figure out what to build and how to build it and how it would make our users successful. And then going back to them before we build anything and validating with them and checking that we are building actually the right thing. And so the whole process of the way products are built at those companies in kind is driven much more by our customers as a collective group than by any one individual customer. If the team doesn't think about cost, what is the prioritization framework? You have two big problems that need to be solved. How do you think about that constraining instrument to help you prioritize? Prioritization is one of the great skills of great teams. And prioritization is hard. Kind like Atlassian, like Shopify, is far more likely to dive into gestion than starvation. There's always no shortage of features. <laughs> so you speak to customers and you try to understand what is going to make the biggest impact to you. And you look at your roadmap and try to understand 
what's going to enable us as a company most in order to enable as many customers as possible. And then there are mechanisms for figuring out what is the most valuable thing you can do. You can do things like impact versus effort. And you always want to do things that are going to be ideally the lowest effort with the highest possible impact. But you never want to do things that are low impact because what's the value of doing that? So there are multiple different frameworks. And this is where product managers are really great at trying to identify the things that are going to have that highest impact, which is why product managers, not just designers, not just researchers, need to be heavily connected with our with our customers and our users. Because what you want to try and do is find those things that are going to have the maximum possible impact for customers. Mm. And so, you know, bringing frameworks like impact uh, effort into play is, is the way you kind of prioritize things. Effort, okay. So on effort, like obviously product velocity, and the speed at which you are building is really vital, especially at your stage. Like you don't want to be in that garage five years down thinking that like with that hundred year mindset, look, if I solve this and speak to customers in five years time yeah, or build this thing over five years, it'll make this big impact. So how do you sort of, I guess, weight that effort piece so that you are building quickly, but you're also solving big problems? Kind is an interesting company because we come at the world with a bit of a heretical view of things. The world for quite some time, especially in like infrastructural SaaS tech, has been going down a path of very much unbundling of products. So separation of products into distinct verticals. And you can see this across the board is pretty much no single bundle product. And kind of heretical view in this world is we believe that there's actually really great opportunity and benefit by having one product which brings together all of the benefits of authentication and feature flagging and billing and user management all into one place. But the reality is that it takes time to build a platform. Um, it's very rare that any company, in fact, there are no companies really in existence that have set up to build a platform and have succeeded at building a platform. And so what we cannot do is kid ourselves that we're going to build out the whole platform because that's when we're five years in the garage never getting any customers. And that's not a useful thing. And so what we've had to do is look at the product that we're building and what we're building towards and say, what is the most sensible, smallest piece that will bring exponential value to our customers and go and build that thing. And luckily there is an entire market focused around authentication and user management. And so what we're building right now is what I believe is one of the world's best authentication and user management platforms. And that is, that's out in the market. That's ready for people to use. People are using that. They're jumping on it and falling in love with it because we built it. A lot of our competitors have been around for 10 years. They have 10 years of baggage baked into their product. Yeah. And we got the benefit of being 10 years later where we could look at it and only build the things that matter. They've got, they're supporting 10 different ways of doing authentication Nine of those ways are really shit and not particularly secure. They have to continue to support those. We just have to build the one that's really valuable. And so you know, we get this real advantage by actually being a late entry into the market mm. where we get to work on just the latest versions of these tech. So I'm super excited by the auth product that we have. And that really becomes that cornerstone that allows us to build the rest of the empire on. There's still the five years. It's just how you divide that five years up. Next thing we jump onto is billing, which I'm super excited about because when you bring billing and all together, you get this like magical thing that happens where the two really feed off each other and become this powerful machine that, that just doesn't exist in the world today. But you have to start somewhere. You have to start building one of the atomic units um, of the product. And so all for us is the one that makes most sense. It's you need to get users into the system in order to have any system at all. So authentication is just such a big part of our program. Yeah. And I definitely want to dive into that because there's a number of like super interesting decisions around building that infrastructure and then companies being 
built on top of that. Yeah. And those types of customers will definitely jump into those. I want to dive a bit more into your experience at Atlassian. I know that you were heavily involved in building Jira as a senior design manager. What did you get right while working there? What did I get right? Um, There's a weird magic to Jira that a lot of people don't realize. And that magic is that it's much less a one-size-fits-all solution and much more a scalable platform. And I think the thing we could have done that would have really bucked it up was to try and build a one-size-fits-all solution, try and build something that would solve most people's needs, whereas in actual fact, the real magic of Jira is that you can take that product and you can do anything you need to with it. And that's why people love it, but that's also why there's an industry spun up around it of people who support and implement Jira because Jira can literally be any shape you want it to be. You can mold that product to be what you want it to be. And that's largely thanks to some really, really smart thinking by a very, very intelligent product and engineering team led by Mike that's enabled that to happen. And it's really the thinking that went into that that made it a powerful platform. And I think as a design manager, it's very it would be very easy to fall into the trap of, let's build something that just supported this individual type of user's needs without realizing that actually the power would be destroyed by doing that sort of thing. So I think in some ways, the thing that I did best was not fucking with it too much. And speaking of Mike, what do you think his superpower is? Mike, there's many. I think Mike and Scott both share a lot of similar DNA. Um, Their collective superpower is that they are not actually the same person. They're quite different. (laughs) If you look at the, the, the two of them, Scott is a business machine. And that's really the area of the business where he focused most of his attention on. And then Mike really is, and and they actually both do both. But you know, when you kind of look at it, there's kind of a, a, a little bit of focus. Um, and then Mike is really the product mind. And I think it's being an incredible analytic thinker, being able to take that 10,000 foot view, but also being able to dive really deep into things. And probably, I think, I mean, one of the other things that we didn't touch on in you know, what, what makes those companies super powered is being really, really good at trusting people and giving them the autonomy and the space to go and make their own decisions. And Atlassian was really the first time that I encountered a place that really gave freedom, gave autonomy to the team, but was really good at aligning the team, making sure that everybody understood what are the focus areas for the company? What's our mission? What are we trying to achieve? And then course correcting as things were spotted going wrong, but really giving that space and that trust. If you think about Mike and Scott when they started Atlassian, they were a couple of kids, not even straight out of uni. They dropped out of uni to go and start Atlassian. And so they didn't have that kind of built-in belief that you tend to find with a lot of senior leadership, which is, I know better, just do what I say. They really had the understanding that they knew no more than the team that they were hiring. So they went and hired the best damn people that they could possibly find. We do the same thing. One of our values is build a company of giants. And that's literally, how can we build a company of people bigger than us mm-hmm. so that collectively we become a, a company of giants? And I think that's one of the things that Atlassian did so very well is finding really great people, fostering them into being something incredible and giving them the space in order to grow and and use their minds in the best possible way. So it's much less about what are the skills, existing experience that you can bring to the table and much more about how can you think, how can you solve problems and how can you apply those abilities in order to do things that have never been done before. Mm. To go into 
an industry, a SaaS industry, which at that point was really driven by enterprise sales. There was no product dead growth and say, actually, we're going to sell this product for almost nothing, but we're going to sell it to a shit ton of people. That's a pretty gutsy move. And they couldn't have done that if they were died in the wool IBMers who only thought about selling software one way. And it was, I think it's that naivety kind of value, stay foolish is, is this one as well. We really encourage our people to come into things naive, to come into things without preconceived ideas. I think that's one of one of the things that Mike and Scott and Atlassian did so well is giving people that space to experiment, to play, to learn, to try new things and to fail if they needed to. Failure was never anything that was penalized. Failure is just a sign that you've tried something different. You mentioned design a little earlier. What makes a great designer and how did you measure a designer's performance while working at Jira? But even like that extends to your experiences at Shopify and head of product design at Campaign Monitor? The best designers, the single core skill that I believe great designers have is an ability to break down problems, to think about those problems and to come up with great solutions to those problems. It's much less about can you mock things up in Sketch or Figma. In fact, a lot of the time we worked, we built products from a hand sketch because really the tools are built in. One of the things we did very early on at Atlassian is we built the Atlassian design system. One of the kind of benchmark design systems known pretty much across across the globe, it's, it's one of those that people look to as a reference for how to build a great design system. And having that tool there, man, it's a really powerful thing in terms of how you enable your engineering team because they don't need to go and figure out how to build each component. They can just use the ADG's components, but it actually enables the design team just as much because you no longer have designers thinking, how do I design this button? Do I put it on the left or the right? Because the answers are just given to you. And so you don't have to have people thinking about the details that frankly really don't matter. The thing that really matters is how does the thing that we're designing solve a customer need? How does this thing, how does this thing make the biggest possible impact? How does this thing solve this problem as elegantly as possible? And working on those things. So we tended to look at the concept of iteration and churn. Churn is when you're working on something and you don't really know what it is that you're trying to solve, but you're moving pixels around and you're trying to make this thing more pretty. And, and that's a really big waste of time for any designer to do. And so we try to get our designers away from thinking about that towards iteration, which is how can we improve this thing so that it actually solves the problem better so that it provides value for our customers better. And so when you look at design as great designers, they're really, really good at spending that time to think, to digest, to unpack the problem. And then, you know, it's, I think there's an Einstein quote, which is if you gave me an hour to solve, to save the world, I'd spend 55 minutes thinking and five minutes doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's a lot of truth to that concept, which is the best designers that I've ever worked with spend an inordinate amount of time thinking about and understanding the problem and understanding the solution. And then a very small amount of time on actually executing that because of things like design systems that enable them not to really think about how do I execute on this, but to think about how do I solve this. So the best designers are the best problem solvers. They're great things. The funny and fascinating thing about that response is that's oftentimes the best quality in founders where to be more specific, they have an authentic connection to the problem and a set of unique insights to solve that problem. And so there's this like universal principle of can you solve problems? Can you do it quickly? And I just thought that's quite interesting to note. In terms of orchestrating a team 
First of all, I wanted to know what was the difference between being the head of product design versus just design. But how do you how did you orchestrate that team to work really well? Um, I've had many titles: head of product design, UX, <laughs> UX. Yeah, <laughs> they all fundamentally came down to the same thing. It's still leading. And it's really just because of the evolution of that language. And, and every company has a different language for describing that. But product design, UX design, design are fundamentally, they're just different words for the same thing. I need teams of product designers. And product design encapsulates a lot of research and content strategy and a bunch of other roles um, that really you know, make the team an effective team. And there's not really any big difference between the teams that I've led. They've all been pretty much the same. Bringing together, again, those great thinkers, those great minds, and uh, giving them that opportunity to go solve problems and to partner with the rest of the, you know, the engineering and, and product management teams to build great things. And I wanted to actually pull on the prior thread. It's probably why designers make such good founders. Oh, yes. And there's a whole host of companies yeah. that have designers leading them dovetail in our portfolio just comes straight to mind. But obviously, Airbnb is super famous for their design-led approach. What do you think the competitive advantage is having your experience grounded in design? I don't think this is something that's unique to designers and people who've come out of the design field. I think actually most great CEOs, most great founders actually are designers. They're just designers in disguise. They might not be great at designing with pixels, but they're great at problem solving. The greatest of the great Steve Jobs was at heart a designer. He cared about the details. He cared about what the thing looked like, but he really cared about what it solved and how it enabled and empowered people. I classify that as a designer and a design mindset. I think a lot of the greatest founders that we see in the world didn't come through a traditional design path, but what they're doing is applying the same principles of design, which is understand what the situation in the world is right now. Think about what a future outcome might be that reacts to that situation. Go figure out how to build something and build that thing and execute on it. Put it out into the market and go see how it does and learn from it and go repeat that process over and over again. I don't think there's anything special about people who've come formally through the design track or people who have gone down that CEO path. They are all fundamentally the same skill set that they're applying. Designers just have the added advantage that they've formally been through that and worked in that world for a long time, which makes it a lot more accessible. I think people who have come through a pure design track also really care about the details and the aesthetics of the thing. And we live in a world where people care about aesthetics. They care about beautiful things. They want to have beautiful things. And so if we can add that additional benefit of building a beautiful product that people are going to genuinely fall in love with, that just helps to accelerate things. Airbnb is a beautiful product. We hope to build a product that's just as beautiful as that. And Apple, the products that they build, people fall in love with them because of how beautiful they are aesthetically, but also how well they solve the problem, how elegantly they do things. Joni Ive talks a lot about inevitable design, which is that concept of when you get to the point where you have your final solution, you kind of look at it and go like, why didn't we realize that all along? And you see that in the evolution of the iPhone is a good example where it's progressed through multiple stages and you get to the point where you look at the early ones and you're like, why did they do things that way instead of the way they've done them? Well, if they had to progress through those findings, they had to learn from each iteration of the thing to get to the point where each thing becomes more and more inevitable looking. They just released the, the, the island thing. And that's a really, really smart piece of design. And you look at it and you go like, why has nobody done that before? It's, it's inevitable. I think that that's really what great designers do. They think about how do we make this thing incrementally better and better and better over time. And so great design-led organizations do that also. I don't think that 
design is the realm of people who formerly are anointed with the title of design. I think design is something that's employed by a lot of people, but there's benefits to have, you know, having a good aesthetic eye, which, you know, which a lot of designers do have also. We spend a large amount of time at Kind looking at beautiful things, trying to understand what makes them beautiful, why they work, why they're effective, how they tell their story well, how, how, they, how they reveal their story really well, and trying to take a lot of those learnings and embody them into the products and the website and the experience that we build. I think that's one of the other big things is too many companies, especially in the early days, think really about how do I build this product and, um, and what should it do? And what we think about is how do we create an experience out of this whole thing? How do we create a journey? So from the very first time you encounter Kind, you start in on a progression with us, which brings you through our website and that helps to unpack the story and helps you to understand who we are, what we do, and why you should be in love with us. And then takes you on that journey into the product, which is a continuation of that story. And then when you hit the product, it should sure as shit not be a letdown. It should not be the thing that disappoints you. And so we spend a lot of time crafting it to be a beautiful product that people will fall in love with. And I think it's that that focus on experience. I think it's what Airbnb does so well as well. Is that they didn't stop at thinking about what's the experience of the software. They thought about the experience of what it's like to be a host, what it's like to be, what do they call the people who stay in places, their customers, their users, yes, what it's too. like to go out there and stay in somebody's house. And how do you make that a great experience? And we think a lot about that is how do we tell our story really well? How do we enable different personas in the team? We think about traditional infrastructure software like ours tends to really focus on people who work in technical jobs. And so what they focus on doing is let's get the person in there, get them set up, and then get them out of there so they can go do something else while the software just runs. And they only come back to it when something goes wrong. And we really say, actually, we think there's an opportunity for the whole team to come and work in the software that we're building, a place where people can come and actually do their jobs. Can we get people who work in finance to come and get the numbers? So in an early stage startup, you might be able to come in and get your monthly active usage number, which is for a lot of early stage startups, actually a really hard number to get. Um, and so, you know, we build it to, to help people in finance to do that or the founder to do that. How can we help marketers to do their jobs better by giving them access to the users? Can we help support people to support their customers directly through Kind? Can we help product managers to do their jobs better because Kind exists? So how can we empower the whole team, not just how can we empower one engineer, one person in the team to set things up and then forget about it? And so it's all about how do we create that experience? How do we get them where they live? How do we get more involved in their lives? How do we empower them and enable them? And I think that's where things get really interesting and where that design mindset really empowers a lot more. This is what Airbnb did. It's what Apple does so very well. It really understands your life and how the tool works for you. And I think this is hopefully what Kind is doing. You know, we're a pretty great company there, but yeah, this is this is what we aim to be. You mentioned, you know, I think I heard in a prior podcast that storytelling was a really important part of your fundraising journey. As you can tell, it's a really important fabric of building product and taking people on that journey through storytelling. And I can hear it right now. What lessons can you share or tips on storytelling? One selfishly for me, but also is probably more importantly for founders when they're pitching. What really resonated, do you think, with Blackbird and your other investors? Storytelling, there's the, there's the fundamentals to it, which are kind of that story arc. Paint the picture of the problem right now, show how we can address that problem and what the outcome will be. That's the kind of classic story arc. You want to be really thinking about that, but I think there's a lot 
there's a lot of other interesting things when it comes to guiding teams and raising funding. Another one is paint the picture of how big the problem is, how big and hard and entrenched it is and how much of a problem it really is in the world. And then paint the picture for what a better world could be with that thing in it. You need to really like up-level the way you think about that problem. But I think there's also, you know, when it comes to our team, if we talk about a mission-led company, we spend a lot of time as a team talking about what the mission of the company is, what the purpose of the company. We have the biggest purpose that we could possibly imagine, which is to create a world with more founders. That's like an open-ended, never going to be achieved thing, but it's the thing that we believe the most passionately in, is how can we enable as many people as possible to go out there and change the world, to go out there and make that impact? Because founders are fundamentally the people who are changing the world. We didn't have Steve Jobs all those years ago starting a company. If we didn't have Mike and Scott, if we didn't have Toby starting Shopify, we wouldn't have these great companies that have literally gone on to change the world. And so we really, as a company, believe that the work we're doing is probably the most important work of our lives. It's the thing that will have the biggest impact. Because if we can get one more Mike and Scott or one more Toby to have that opportunity to start their business, then then that's a really, really major impact that we can have on the world. And so if we can enable as many founders as possible to succeed, that's how we have the biggest impact. And so these are the kind of stories we tell internally to help remind our team, this is what we're doing. Mm. We're building a product, yes. But what does that product actually do? That's where the real value comes. And then Reid Hoffman has this really great concept, and I love it, and I stole it, which is you want to make people the heroes of their own lives. And I think that's very true for when you build teams. You want to help people to succeed as much as possible to feel like they've done something heroic, to feel like they've done something that really has that big impact. It's not something we particularly talk internally about, but I think that concept is something that we employ quite heavily is how do we make people feel like the work that they do matters? How do we make people understand that this incredible journey we're going on is going to have a big impact? And the, thing, the role that they do within the company, no matter how small, is the most important thing that they could possibly be doing right now. And we don't actually have anyone who does a small role at kind. Every single person yeah. has an outsized 10x impact. They went to work in any other company, they'd be doing literally 10 times less what they're doing at kind. Every single person in the company is there because they matter and they're going to have an exponential impact. And they all get that. And so it's about helping to make sure and remind them, hey, we're building this thing. But this is why we're building this thing. And I think that's where that storytelling nature comes in is to you're constantly reminding people of the mission, of the purpose, of what we're trying to achieve, of how much impact it'll have and the world that it will create. I think that's one of the reasons we haven't particularly struggled to hire people. I think that's one of the reasons why our entire team really loves the journey that they're on is because they know that they're having real impact. If we can achieve what is fundamentally an impossible thing, this heretical view of the world, we will have done something that nobody has ever done before. And that's a pretty heroic journey to be on. It's a pretty exciting thing to be involved in. And that's where I want my team to, to remember. Obviously, I think there's a balance you want to ride with any kind of storytelling, any kind of leadership is you still need people to be executed. We can't all be just dreaming about a five-year future, which is grand and amazing and going to enable so many founders and so many people to change the world. But we also need to be thinking about 
how do we execute on this today? What is the one thing that I need to go and do right now that's going to enable that step change in the universe? That's going to empower us to, to get towards that thing. So it's, it's making sure that people understand what is your role in this journey? How do you go about executing that? And how can you be the most effective at doing that thing and giving them that space to really think about it, giving our marketing team the space to own marketing, to figure out how the hell they're going to go about you know, capturing an enormous audience, giving our engineering team a massive mandate and saying to them, go figure out how the hell you build this enormous product and how you do that really well and how you do that better and more beautifully and more elegantly than anybody else out there in the world. And that's all that storytelling is. You want to get people excited because at the end of the day, I said this earlier, but a company is nothing more than a collection of people with a shared mission and vision. And so all a company is and all the role of a leader in a company like Kind is to be chief storyteller, to be the culture builder. Um, and then there's a few other parts to it. You know, people in hiring, uh, another big one, you're bringing the right team together, bringing the best people together, and then you know deciding which things to promote within the company and which things to kill off. Part of it is, you know, how do you create the greatest culture and, and be the biggest storyteller for the company? Because then the team will understand the mission and want to drive from it. There's a really great quote, a comment, which by, if you want to build a boat, don't tell, send the men into the forest to chop down trees, teach them to yearn for the last blue sea. I just love that concept. You want to have a team that is passionately focused on the why, on the what impact this will have, on being in the vast blue sea, not about building boats. What is the frequency or how often do you communicate the why to the team, which is quite a specific question. And then how does that then translate into the day-to-day and how do you measure people's impact so that they are executing on that day-to-day? Great question. And there's a bunch of pieces to it. We communicate, so we have an all hands every single Friday. And that is, it's a combination of things. We share what's gone well in the week, what we're working on, what new things people should be aware of. We try to make sure that everybody understands what we're doing as a business. But another big part of it is, it's really my opportunity to talk to the team and try and inspire them and motivate them and remind them of the mission and the purpose. Now, I don't I think a big part of leadership is repetition. You have to say the same thing over and over again. And so this is really my opportunity to do that with the team, to help to motivate them, inspire them, excite them about the mission and the journey that we're on. It's not about saying the same thing over and over again every week. I try to pick a topic that I think is relevant, that something that's been going on and try to help them understand how to react to that or to think about that thing. But all those things ladder up to a team that's very heavily aligned, it's very heavily informed, understands what they're doing as a business and is excited to go charge after that thing every single week. We then wrap that up into a monthly shareholder update, which goes to all of our investors, all our shareholders and our team, because our team is investors, they're shareholders in the company as well. They, every one of them owns equity. It's one of the first things we do for them. So they become owners of the company. And so we share our, our investor update to our entire team as well as to our, as to our investors. And that update is focused on our mission and our values and what are we doing towards those things as well as the execution update on how things are going, how we're performing. Um, and then that ladders up into our board meeting, which happens once a quarter, which we share the day after or the Friday after typically in the all hands. We share the what we discussed with the board, what the outcomes were, what decisions were made, how we're doing financially, or every single thing that we take the board through, we take every one of our team through. And so they end up super, super aligned and super, super engaged and understanding because they're part of this. They own the company. They're involved in driving the company just as much as I am. And in fact, the decisions that they're making are much more important on a day-to-day basis than any decision that I'm making. 
they're deciding how we run this business. They're deciding how to take it. I make a handful of key decisions a month or a year. Most of the work is done by this team and I want to have them to be as, as empowered as possible. And so when it comes to how do we measure performance within that? We tend to look much more at the outcomes than how people are operating on a day-to-day -day basis. People have different ways of operating. They have different ways of doing things. They have different time schedules that they like to work to. Some people prefer to work early in the morning and work halfway through the day. Some people prefer to work from midday onwards. Some people prefer to work random times during the day. We don't particularly care. We don't measure performance-based thing on things like that. We really think about who is having an outsized impact who's having exponential impact on the product, on our customers, on the company in general. Fortunately, we're a small team. That tends to be everybody. There's no space for that in, in a 30-people company. There's no space for people who are not contributing. And we're very fortunate to have a team that seems so far to be a bunch of A players and really care. And I think part of making people into A players is you give them autonomy, you give them space, you give them the vision, and you set them loose to go do it. And you challenge them to go and do it. I think if you look at great companies, Atlassian, Dovetail, Shopify, most of the people who joined that company in the early days stayed through the vast majority and they had very low attrition and they let very few people go. And I think the reason for that is not because they were really good at accidentally hiring the right people. The reason was, is that they gave people the challenge and the space to grow and the empowerment to grow and to do great things. And those people became great people and they supported them in the hard times as well as in the easy times. Mm. And I think that's how you make a great team. It's not by hiring well. Um, hiring well is an important part of it. Uh, hiring really smart people who can solve problems. But um, it's about giving those smart people who can solve problems the space in order to go and do their jobs, whatever that job might be. And on this idea of ownership and empowerment, you in the blog that I referred to earlier on Rock, Paper, Scissors on decision-making, there's this idea of encouraging failure. And when the culture is so transparent, what's an example of encouraging failure? What's the right way to do it? Be careful with the, I think a lot of people confuse kind of the failure concept with not trying or doing stupid things. We don't ever want to have a company where people are lazy and they fail because they didn't try hard enough. And we also don't want to have a place where people fail because they made stupid decisions or they didn't think about things and they didn't make decisions that will support the outcomes of the company. This is, this is again, why we give our, our entire team equity, because when you're an owner of a company, you'll make decisions like an owner, going to make decisions that support the best outcomes for the company, or at least you're going to try to. And so we really encourage that. I think our marketing team is a really good example of how we encourage failure. I heard a great line the other day from one of the founders, Tim um, at uh, Eucalyptus. I can't remember the exact wording, but he, the gist of it was, it's amazing how forgetful the market is. You should try things and see what resonates and anything that didn't resonate in a few months' time will be forgotten anyway. So try different shit, see what happens. And we try and instill that into our marketing team as well to try different things, to see, to try sometimes stupid things, to try things that that maybe seem like they might not be the right things to do, but to try them anyway and see what, how we can help people to be excited about kind and to help kind to resonate with people. It's across the company. It's also, we give an inordinate amount of trust to our engineers to decide which things are the most valuable for them to go and work on and to pick those things up and to go and invest their time in doing those things. And largely, they get a lot of autonomy in figuring out how they do those things. And so they may totally screw it up. 
but it's more valuable that they go and solve it and figure it out and have ownership of it and understand why they did things and get coached in how to make smart and great decisions. But if they own that thing, if they drive it, then they're going to feel that ownership. And if they get it wrong, who cares? We go fix it. But, you know, it's about constantly rolling forward in everything that we build. It's about constantly learning, growing, getting better at doing things. Yeah, we're always going to make wrong decisions. Mm. If I think just, you know, about the IA, the information architecture of kind, I think we're on our third or fourth iteration of it where we've put something out and realized we really screwed it up and we had to go back and revisit it and make it better. And we get better and better at designing the way people interact with our products. And it's not failure, it's learning. And your team learns from the mistakes that they made from getting something out there and going like, ah, actually that's not working so well. And people are telling us that that sucks and they're getting confused. And we're trying it out and getting confused. That's not failure, that's learning. You actually need to reframe failure because a lot of things are, which were traditionally classed as failure, but they're actually just learning opportunities to get better. And if you don't put something out there, if you get paralyzed by that failure, if you try to perfect things, um, before putting them out there, then you're really never going to learn and inevitably you're just going to put something out that fails anyway. Speaking of the marketing team, I was searching up Blackbird the other day and I saw at the top, there was a paid ad for Kind, which I just thought was genius. Is there a master plan behind this SEO strategy? We have kind of two SEO strategies, if you like. One is in the infrastructure space and the other is in the startup space. And so we really think quite heavily about how can we engage as many early stage founders to take their ideas and try and create a reality from those things, but also then engage with more established businesses that need better and improved infrastructure that are unhappy with the pricing of the products that they're using right now or with the support that they're getting from those companies to come across to kind and use us because we actually believe we're a better option than those other companies. And so we really bifurcate our marketing into those two big categories of things. Obviously, there's a benefit having a company like Blackbird. This is actually why Blackbird was why we chose Blackbird as one of our investors, because Blackbird does such a lot in the community, especially within Australia, within the startup community. If you think about the Giants program and the Startmate program, these are very heavily aligned with what we're trying to achieve as a company and create a world with more founders. You literally have hundreds, thousands of people who are learning about entrepreneurship and trying their hands at building products and companies. And the Blackboard portfolio companies you know, are also great opportunities for us as a company to enable some of those to do their best work. And so we really think about how do we enable as many people going through not just the Blackboard communities and Blackboard programs, but all of those programs in the world to empower those people to have an advantage-making tool like Kind that will accelerate their path to growth of their products. Yeah, I was. it's funny. I, I was thinking the other day that Kind one day could build the best venture firm <laughs> given like the access to founders at that stage. And like our mission is so aligned in seeing a world with more ambitious founders. So yeah, totally obsessed with that idea. Speaking of founders, why have you decided to target that group specifically? What is it about founders and those that size of team or company formation is going to be useful for kind. We think we actually think about multiple different kind of groups when we sell kind. We think about both early stage founders as well as SMBs in the market, and there's a reason for that. Early stage founders are on their journey, and they need every bit of support that they can possibly get, which is why we give kind away of up to your know, first seven and a half thousand monthly active users. You can use Kind literally for free um, as you build your business. 
but somehow you've got to pay for that. And so we look to the kind of philosophy of companies like Tesla, Tesla, the, the roadster, uh, which allowed them to fund the Model S and then that allowed them to fund the Model X and then the Model 3. Each one of those steps kind of funded the next. And so we really look at, you know, how can we work with as many SMBs and with markets in order to fund us to be the, the product and the platform that can support as many early stage founders? Because our ultimate goal, like a Tesla and a Model 3, is they want to put an electric car into every household. We want to put kind and our full product offering as we build it out into every single early stage founded company in the world. We want to enable every one of those to not think about building infrastructure, but to spend their time building their product. And how can we accelerate those as much as possible on their journey? And so we'll do more and more things in the long run to enable those early stage founders to build less and less of the infrastructure so they can focus their energy on building more and more of the product. And eventually we get to the point where anyone who just has an idea can ultimately build on top of kind. But the way to do that is to fund it. And the way you fund that is to focus our sales and a lot of our marketing efforts on mid-market and SMB companies who are established, who need really amazing tools that are better than the ones that they're dissatisfied with right now. This is why I spoke earlier about you don't build a platform at once, you build a piece of it, and we're building that wealth piece. That's to enable those later stage companies in order to empower the early stage founders. Now, the reality of a lot of the SMB in the market is they're still founders within those companies. So people who are you know, coming to kind, the people who are making the change within those companies are still entrepreneurs. They still have the same mindset, which is how can I make the most change within this company? Yes, the company is established, but they're looking for change. They're looking to make their team more effective. They're looking to make their product more effective. They're looking to make their product more safe and secure. They're looking to enable their team to focus on building their product, not to building, not building and maintaining their infrastructure. So they're actually kind of the same people that are just at different stages. Their businesses typically are at different stages, but it's the same people, the same mindset that exists in both of those different places. And so you know, we talk a lot about early stage founders, but what we're really all about is enabling every founder, every entrepreneur in every one of those companies to go and make a massive step change in the company and in the world at large and empowering all of those. So, you know, we think about, we talk a lot publicly about early stage founders and creating a world with more founders, but we really think about everybody who's involved in a business, um, involved in a SaaS company that needs to be better. One of the beautiful things about building an infrastructure business is that they're building their business on top of you and you are like the building blocks of that company's infrastructure, for lack of a better word. And when you target founders, like one of the potentially like tough things about that market is probably high churn, probably don't have a high capacity to pay. And so what you sort of revealed is this focus on selling to SMBs and mid-market where you do have a bit more stability. And so I'm curious how that story in the product, especially on the self-serve side, has changed, if at all, to arrive at those aha moments for those different target customers. We're still working on our onboarding to make it as effective for those companies as possible. But one of the things we do is try to, as you onboard to the product, either you're onboarding yourself or you're, you're coming through a sales conversation or a conversation with somebody in kind, try to put you on a path that's going to most effectively match what your needs are. We're still, you know, onboarding is a, a constantly evolving and ongoing process in, in any company. You never solve, you never finish onboarding. You just incrementally make it better and better over time. And we are no different. And so we try to build in the mechanisms 
that will help companies at every level to be most effective. More established businesses, we think a lot about importers and how we integrate you know, best with your tooling that you already have. I would give you as broad a support of different SDKs so that you can build in whatever language you're already using. You know, early founders, we're, we're thinking about, you know, how can we really help you get your business set up? How can we enable you in many, many different ways to, to build better on top of us, to have the right documentation to understand how to do things? Kind is already, it's probably one of the most exciting and interesting businesses out there because, because of what you said right at the beginning there. If you think about the history of companies, there are very, very few companies that have been actually the heart of their customer's product. Shopify is like quite close to that, whereas where Shopify is the mechanism where you sell your product, um, but you still have a separate product that you sell. You manufacture a mug or you manufacture t-shirts and then you sell them. But, but Shopify becomes the mechanism, the gear to enable you to do that. They become effectively your business apart from the product piece. Atlassian and more other businesses are more tangential to your business. Atlassian is a good example. Jira, Confluence, they're tools that allow your team to be effective. They're tools that allow your team to run, but they are not the heart of your business. You could take Confluence and Jira away and your business will continue to run. Shopify is more embedded. And then Kind is kind of this special case that's the next generation of that where your business literally exists and revolves around Kind, especially as an early stage founder, you're going to have your business built on top of kind and it's going to be the building blocks for your business and so we have to do everything we can to make sure that our customers love us trust us feel empowered by us get the best damn support that they've ever had from any company this is one of the things where we see big opportunity to disrupt a lot in this market is the more traditional players in, in the author space in particular are not doing so very well around providing legendary support and service to their customers and we really believe there's a big opportunity for us to make support a big, big pillar and a big piece of what the company is. It's not so much about having a great product. Yes, we have a truly great product, but also how can we empower our customers? How can we enable them with the best damn support that they've ever had in their lives? Because they are going to be building with us. They want to feel like we are a partner on their journey, not just a software provider that's going to give them tooling. And so we spend a lot of time, you know, and I learned this lesson from Shopify. Shopify, when I was say a company of 6,000 people, had 1,500 people working in support. There's not many companies in the world that care that much about providing a great support experience. And Kind needs to be the same business. It needs to be a business that if you need support, if you need guidance, if you need input into how's my product look, what can I do better? This is where Kind comes in. It's not just there to give you infrastructure and sell your product. It's there to be a partner on your business journey and help you to grow and be more effective. I asked a founder, what were some questions I could ask you in prep for this? And one is actually helping me to reorganize the prior question, which I asked, which was, how do you think about designing an incredible self-serve experience was the first one. And the second one was you're opting for a land and expand strategy. How do you empower your initial user to champion you selling into the org? How do you make a great self-service piece by piece? You optimize it, you get better at doing it, you build a great product, which has great onboarding. You build a lot of great tools. You write a lot of documents. You write a lot of blog posts. We spend a lot of time right now writing blog posts. So, you know, they're useful from an SEO perspective, from a content leadership perspective, but they're actually 
much more useful in enabling the founders that are coming to us, the people in established businesses that are coming to us, to read about kind, to learn about how we think about things, to compare us to other products out there, to really educate themselves and be better at it. A lot of that self-service is giving people the tools that they need outside of just the product. Having great documentation is another one. Have a dedicated content writer whose role it is, is to make sure that our documentation is the best it can possibly be so that people can get in there and not struggle to work things out. And then when they do get stuck, though, we use a lot of Slack. People can reach out to us directly and we will get very, very dedicated. You know, the beauty of you know a smaller company like ours is you get support from our CTO. You can't say that with any of our competitors. You're not going to get support from the, <laughs> the engineering team directly through Slack having them on a chat with you um, and so that's i think something that's a little bit special that you get when you work with a company like us and this is really us practicing being a legendary service company we want to scale that same mechanism we want to scale that same ability to sort support people as we grow as a company but also you hope that people leave those businesses when they go to new ones or start their own startups or whatever it is that they do they take kind with them They've become that flywheel that helps to educate the world that, you know, that we exist, that we provide a great product and that it's something that can empower your business to start, you know, to accelerate your start and give you that unfair advantage. I love that. We're coming up to the end of the episode, but a couple more things I wanted to touch on. One was we can't escape from the round size. How did you think about raising 10 million versus a, a much smaller round? I'd love to get your thoughts there. You don't build an infrastructure platform on the cheap. You have to invest the right amount of time. You have to invest the right amount of engineering effort. You have to build a team around it in order to support it, in order to take it to market. And so we knew from the get-go, three dudes in a garage was not how you build kind. And we have to accelerate right out the gate and we have to be building hard and fast. And so raising a bit of an outside seed round was really the first step towards doing that, was giving our team the ability to grow and scale and to build something that was going to be world-changing, 10 million bucks was the start of that. If you could go back to start kind of again, is there anything that you would do differently? Ooh, I don't know. I don't think so. I am insanely proud of the team that we have built. I love working with every single person that we've got on the team. I think we have this collection of amazing human beings that we've brought together and given them a mission that they're passionate about. And if you think about team, no, I wouldn't. I think the product that we're building is the right one and it's going to have a huge, huge impact. And so, no, I think it feels like we've had a really great run and we've built something that's a little bit special. I wouldn't want to leave that up to fate. I wouldn't want to try and do that again. I, I think you, you, know, you don't get lightning in a bottle twice. And we've definitely managed to harness a little bit of lightning here where you know, we've had amazing people want to come and join us. We've had you know them all understand what we're about and be willing to go charge after this thing. And so no, you know, I'm you know, I'm sure there are small mistakes that have been made along the line and you know we all make mistakes, but learn pretty quickly from those mistakes and we, you know, we evolve. So is there any you know big thing that I feel we've screwed up that we should have done differently? Not particularly. I'm very proud of of the business that we are, of the product that we're building the company that we're becoming and the culture that we're going to drive into the world. And so, no, I feel pretty good. I love that. And when we speak again, maybe in 12 months time, what are you going to say that 
were some of the big milestones that you hit? And I guess to not, another way to frame that is what are you excited about over the next 12 months? You know, we, we talk about our long-term goal of 50,000 customers and a million businesses built on top of kind. I hope that in, you know, when we speak in six, 12 months time, that we will be a really good chunk of the way down that journey, because that's really the, 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 the whole point. We do this thing to enable businesses to grow and to succeed and enable the people who work at those businesses to be heroes of, of their jobs or their companies to become heroes in, in the work that they do. The only thing that matters is let's enable as many of those as possible. So I hope the discussion will be just how many incredible founders and incredible entrepreneurs within companies are building on kind and are falling in love with us. That to me is is really the only reason that we do it. This is the purpose. Well, I can't wait for that conversation. And thank you so much for joining me on Wild Hearts, Ross. That was awesome. It's been a blast. Thank you so much, Mason. It was awesome to chat. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode. If you left with more energy than when you started, we'd be super grateful. If you liked, subscribed, left a review, even shared it with a friend. In case you want to keep in touch, share feedback or even a pitch deck, I'll leave my blink card in the show notes for you to get in touch. Thank you so much for listening once again. And we'll see you in a couple of weeks. Godspeed.